This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the morning break. My name is Graham Stanley, and my special guest today is Dr. Gabriel Diaz Maggioli, Doctor of Education, International Education Consultant, and President of IATEFL, the International Association of Teachers of English as a foreign language. Gabrielle is an expert in teaching and teacher education, and that's what we'll be talking about on today's show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the morning break everyone. I'm Graham speaking to you live from Mexico City. On today's show I'll be talking to Dr. Gabriel Diaz Maggioli from Uruguay. Gabriel is very active in the world of education, particularly language education and he's much in demand as a writer, researcher, consultant, conference presenter, and teacher educator. He's also the president of the Teacher Association, IATEFL. Now remember, if you are listening in live and would like to join the program, then please download the Podbean app, visit ttradio.org, and click on Listening Live on the homepage. This should take you directly into the show. There you can post comments and ask questions during our conversation. And I'll also open up to any of you who want to call in at the end of my conversation with Gabrielle. I'll be talking to Gabrielle right after the Teacher Talk Radio News. We have teamed up with the Witherslack Group to bring you a fantastic face-to-face meetup in Manchester next month. Tickets are free, with lunch included, and you'll be met with a host of amazing speakers. Sign up for Your Voice now at witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash yourvoice2022. Hi, I'm Charlie Burley, the Teacher's Health Coach, and I want to talk to you about the first ever health and wellbeing event for educators, Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload and well-being in school. You'll hear from our incredible lineup of speakers including Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger and many more. There'll be talks, workshops and time to network with like-minded colleagues. We'll look after you all day with brunch, lunch and all the refreshments. You'll get to meet our incredible speakers and our amazing team of ambassadors from the education space. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity EdSupport. This isn't one to miss. I look forward to seeing you there on the 22nd of October at Etc Venues St Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. 
This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Friday the 14th of October saw many schools mark Restart a Heart Day 2022. In Yorkshire, thousands of children across the county took part in events, learning vital life-saving skills. The Yorkshire Ambulance Service ran events designed to improve cardiac arrest survival rates, visiting 136 secondary schools and training more than 30,000 students. A spokesman for the service said that since the launch of the programme in 2014, bystander CPR rates in Yorkshire have increased from 39.9 to 74.9%. Across all four home nations, the British Heart Foundation and the Resuscitation Council UK have worked with a range of partners to ensure that more and more people can learn how to save a life. The official Restart a Heart Day was the 16th of October 2022. The iNewspaper reports on news that the UK's largest teaching union, the NEU, has announced that it will hold a formal ballot for strike action, with a timetable for potential walkouts to be announced in the next few days. The union represents more than 450,000 teaching staff across the country and said it would move ahead with proceedings after it said the government had failed to respond to its calls for an above-inflation pay rise for teachers. A preliminary ballot showed that 98% support a pay rise above the current inflation rate of 10%. The government has offered a rise of 5% for most teachers. The ballot also showed that 86% of teacher members said they were willing to take strike action. The NESUWT has also announced that it will pursue strike action over pay. FE Week focuses on criticism of, of exam board decisions to raise fees by up to 17%. It says that schools and colleges face having to pay out tens of thousands of pounds more in GCSE and A-level fees. Exam boards at Excel and OCR have raised fees for all 2023 exams by 6% whilst England's largest exam board, AQA, has hiked prices by between 5 and 17%. AQA remains the board with the lowest prices overall. Exam boards say they need to hike prices in order to cover costs, while school leaders say the rises are inappropriate at a time when school leaders battle with rising energy and staffing costs. Comments from all boards indicate that whilst they understand schools and colleges are stretched, they try to offer as much value for money as possible and try to keep fees low. In Jersey, the government has pledged to expand its school meal programme to all public primary schools if the £1.6 million funding plan is approved by ministers. The money will be used to create new facilities to store and serve meals, as well as food itself. Chief Minister, Deputy Christina Moore, says the plan shows government commitment to supporting children and families, especially as the cost of living crisis continues. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to look at keeping your phone charged should power cuts be introduced. Coming home to no power between 4 and 7pm may be something we have to learn to live with as the winter approaches. We can live without most things, however, for most, our mobile phone is the main point of contact. With being in work all day and no means of charging once home, will your phone last that extra bit of time? Before I begin, this is not an advert, so there'll be no brand names 
just mentioned, just a look at the technology available to extend the uptime of your phone to keep you connected with your friends and family. The power bank is the obvious choice for extending the charge of your phone. They've come on a lot since they were first introduced. When buying, consider the technology your phone has. If it has an induction charger, meaning you just put your phone on a pad to charge, there are rechargeable induction chargers available. They're like a little backpack for your phone. They come with a stick-on magnet or will connect via an existing magnetic connection if you should have one built in. They can allow simple and secure connections to the charge. Just be aware, some magnetic connections are weakened by the type of case you have on your phone. If you want something more multi-purpose, there are several other types of power bank available. Some double up as torches and hand warmers. However, if you spent the day keeping your hands warm, there won't be much left for you to charge your phone at the end of the day. The next thing to consider while you're making your choices is the capacity of the charge they can hold. This is measured in MAH or milliamp hours. The bigger the number, the more charge it will hold and therefore the longer it will last before recharging. Usually this relates to the cost and also the overall size and weight of the device. To give an example, a 2000 milliamp hour battery will provide approximately twice the charging time as a 1000 milliamp hour battery. Basically what I'm saying is, if you're wanting to charge your device several times throughout the day, then you'll want a large milliamp hour capacity. Finally, if you're going to use a power bank, remember they take time to charge too. So make sure you get into a routine so you're not caught out. Do you already have a power bank? I'd love to hear from you. Why not tell us at TT Radio 2022? I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So hello, Gabrielle, and thank you very much for agreeing to speak to me today. How are you? Thank, and... you. thank you for having me. <laughs> Wonderful. What have you been up to recently, Gabrielle? Oh, my God, lots of work, uh, lots of work locally and internationally. Um, locally, we are facing a mandated national educational reform. So there's been a lot of meetings and um, kind of working from the resistance uh, more than on the mainstream, trying to um, not to lose what has been good about uh, initial teacher education in this country. And internationally, um, uh, we're full steam ahead planning for Harrogate 2023 with IETFL tying up uh, the last bits to be able to publish our um, plenary speakers. They are a surprise that will be coming up once a week uh, starting uh, in November. And we are looking forward to also receiving news uh, from the selection committee for the proposals about which have been uh, incorporate, uh, incorporated into the program. So, so loads of work. Very, very busy then, I see. Absolutely. What, what I'd like to, um, I definitely want to talk to you about all, all of what you've mentioned, in particular, your work with ministries of education, internationally and locally, teacher education mm -hmm. and IATEFL. What I'd like to do first is actually go back to, to your beginnings. Okay. And I'd love to know how you became interested and involved in, in English teaching and oh. then in teacher education. That both are a lifetime ago, basically. <laughs> this is this is actually my 39th year teaching wow. uh, English and my 29th year in teacher education. So it's literally two lifetimes. Um, I, I originally attended university to become a lawyer. Oh, wow. And I kept flanking all my exams. Um, so one of my friends, I mean, you have to understand that higher education in Europe is absolutely free. 
Yes. So there are no issues of pay, paying tuition. Um, it so happened that I prepare all the exams. Exams were mandatory in the School of mm -hmm. Law. I prepare all the exams with a bunch of colleagues or classmates from different parts of the country. Uh, I kept flunking it, but they kept passing them. Basically, one of my friends told me, like, buddy, you, you, you would be a great teacher, but a lousy lawyer. So he literally forced me out of a bus when we drove past the School of Education and said, go in there and inquire. And I just fell in love with English language teaching. I always liked uh, teaching. That was something that, that was inside me since I was a child. And then that was a, a one-way road. I entered the School of Education. I graduated in four years. And then I started looking at what can I do besides having a BA in teaching English. Um, I was lucky enough to be in a country that had very good ties with international organizations. So I did what was called in those days the International House International uh, Teacher Training Institute, which was similar to a CELTA. And then we were lucky to bring the University of Reading uh, Center for Applied Language Studies. We had people here who gave a, a three-week seminar on becoming a teacher trainer. And then we just, I just took it from there. I loved becoming a trainer. I started doing like little workshops in the schools where I work. Then I moved on to presenting at conferences. And then I just got my hands dirty when I did my master's with teacher education. And I did my doctorate along the same lines as well. Fantastic. So it sounds like there was that key moment where your friend persuaded you to try teaching and that was a spark that has continued to sort of ignite uh, ever since absolutely I, I always say that i found myself uh, as a learner and as a professional once i went into the school of education and i knew i liked i always explained things to them i knew my stuff for law but because i have attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity I didn't tend to do very well in written examinations. So these were three hour long examinations. So I always got distracted or I didn't really fulfill the task. So it was a learning curve as well. What happened in the School of Education is even though we had a written test for every subject we took, we also had an oral exam. And the way teachers approached it was, they would ask us in the oral questions about what things in the written test we hadn't been clear about. And that is how I succeeded. I, I got given the chance to explain myself. And that's how I passed all the exams. Oh, wow. That's quite a story. That's really interesting oh, to hear. Yeah. And um, so what is it about teacher education? Because I think when when I look at the work that you're doing, I think the work that you do with teacher education is is something you seem to be particularly interested in. And what is it about that that really appeals to you? Um, I always say that I was saved. I had all the conditions to fail um, because of my socioeconomic status, my attention deficit disorder with hyperactivity, my dyslexia. I had all the ducks in a row lined up to fail 
but public education in my country saved me. So I feel like it is a mandate for me to contribute whatever a lot or a little I can do to public education in my country from teaching something as a foreign language, right? And I soon realized that I could make an impact in the lives of the students in the classroom, but I wanted an impact to be bigger. I had a wonderful professor, Cedar Rahman. Um, he was from Bangladesh in one of my postgraduate courses. And he has this wonderful metaphor. He says, we come to, to, to the world with an empty basket. And when we leave this world, the important thing is to leave a basket full of things so that others can pick up. And I took that pretty much to heart. I soon realized that I could make a bigger impact if I went into the business of training teachers uh, so that they could be the best teachers they can be. And I have developed this passion for that uh, from a very social justice perspective. Uh, I'm critical of standardized uh, teacher education programs because they are not fully um, contextualized to the needs of the to the local needs. I always say these standardized programs allow for at least a module where trainers could contextualize uh, all the theory and praxis to the local context, that would be great. And this is what I've been striving to do, to find ways in which we can make teacher education flexible enough to accommodate both the international standards, which are very important because of quality and because of the fact that, I mean, we are a profession and we need to be recognized as a profession. On the other hand, we also need the local um, live, if you wish, uh, to be able to effect the changes that are needed in different places in the world. So this is basically my, my work over the past 20 years, trying to develop a framework along those lines. Wow. And if a teacher would like to make a first step to move into teacher education, what do you think they should do? What would be the first sort of recommendation for them? The first recommendation would be to actually look at their teaching thoroughly to find strengths and weaknesses and try to find ways in which to tackle those weaknesses. Once you have learned how to improve yourself, you can slowly start sharing those stories with others and see if they resonate. Once you find that those stories resonate, get a good education in teacher education. Most of us became teacher educators because of seniority or by chance. There was an opening, they called you, we started doing it replicating the models that have come before us. And those models, of course, we know. I mean, um, life changes, societies change, education changes, and we cannot be replicating the same things. So once you have a grip on how, one way in which you can improve your practice, work with others, share those stories, and slowly, after you take a good training of trainers course, or you do a shadowing of an expert trainer, um, dip your toes into giving presentations, listening to what your colleagues say. I always say, of all the international associations I belong to, IATFO to me is my favorite because there is professional talk during conference. In a very respectful mode, people come up to you and say what you're saying resonates with me or are you really sure about what you're saying? And that gets you thinking. The other thing is, try to join a community of practice that uh, is made up of like-minded um, educators, teacher developers, teacher trainers, 
and learn from those. I learned a lot from attending uh, training sessions, even outside English language teaching. I did neurolinguistic programming for a while, then I did other kinds of courses, but always looking at how is the trainer doing this? I even took once <laughs> with a colleague, we signed up for a training of trainers in economics education. Neither of us knew zilch about economics. We learned a lot in the training of trainers course, but the methodology was very appealing, right? The way they use simulations, well, loop input and other training strategies was a before and after for us in our training methodology. That's really interesting. I think I completely agree with you to kind of, if you look at what is being done outside of your field, you can learn so mm -hmm. much. I remember when I first came to Mexico, I took a, a course that was all about detective fiction. Um, uh -huh. partly because I was interested in reading in Spanish uh, uh -huh. and I, I like detective fiction. I want to kind of get an idea of of the Mexican kind of scenario of detective fiction writers. But the the tutor of the course, it was a very small group, and the tutor of the course, um, he set translations of classic British detective fiction, uh -huh. so okay. Agatha Christie and and others, um, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes and stuff, which was a bit disappointing because I was interested yeah. in the Mexican writers. The and then Mexican also, writer. his uh, methodology was actually just to bring the texts along to class and have us read out loud, which I guess was okay for me because part of the reason was to improve my Spanish. But mm -hmm. it just seemed to be, you know, forty minutes of reading. A short story out loud and then 10 minutes of of discussing it it was it was the kind of like oh i really didn't understand <laughs> so that's an example of of someone teaching if you like in a way that i uh, that actually showed me how not to teach but then Absolutely. It, i've definitely had other experiences of you know with spanish teachers or, or in other circumstances learning something else where i thought there's been some really good uh practice so that observation, I think, of, of teacher educators is key, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's not, I like Jim Scrivener's notion. If you remember the first edition of Learning Teaching, he had a series of classroom observation tasks at the back of the book. And the one I liked the most was one called Stolen Gifts. When okay. you observe a colleague, you take one thing, just one, that you would really like to replicate in your uh, in your classroom. And that is in itself a learning curve, basically, because you've seen it done by somebody else, you try it out, and that generates the necessary noticing, as Mason would say, right, becoming aware of, oh my God, now this is not what the other person did. Why did I do it this way? And that starts you off in an awareness racing and reflective cycle, which is, what helps you grow, in my opinion. Wonderful. Yeah, I think that observation of others is so important. But the other thing I really like is the ability we have now because of audio and video tools to actually observe ourselves. So you Absolutely. can actually make a recording of your, yourself teaching or teacher training and learn from that as well. Although I think it's something that's very difficult to do, isn't it? It is. And one of the things that I've been struggling with um, is actually getting authentic teaching material for teacher training courses. 
In the same way that we claim that we need to provide students with authentic material, we need those things. I'm collecting quite a corpus of lesson transcripts. I have my trainees uh, record themselves teaching and transcribing, and we use those transcripts in our classrooms to analyze different uh, things that, we, that connect to our syllabus. Lesson plans, different kinds of lesson plans. Students' expression. I mean, when we have the lesson plan, I always ask my student teachers, collect evidence of your students' learning, and we look at it and we discuss, is this learning? Why? Or is this just repetition? Was this uh, the product of memorization or of creativity? And another thing that I engage my student teachers a lot in is journaling. I think that having the time to put your thoughts uh, to paper and take a step back and say, who this happened or this didn't happen is really, really cool. And you were talking about observing others, but also recording that observation in a systematic way. So one tool that I've been using is without giving the students, uh, the student teachers, the actual lesson plan or the recording of the, of the lesson, I give them the um, lesson observation instrument, which is qualitative, not quantitative. So before they actually watch a video of somebody doing teaching, they have this appraisal by an external pair of eyes about what the person did, what worked and what didn't work. And then they look at the lesson plan and they are better able to conceptualize teachers' actions. Because I think that's the bit that is missing in most training programs, the connection between teacher thinking and teacher doing. Wow, I really so, like that idea. It's the first time I've heard of, of anyone doing that, of um, giving someone else's opinion or a kind of expert opinion on, on a lesson before the observation. That's a really good idea. Exactly. So and with the, with the positive things and the flaws, in general, we use the way we do it here in Uruguay is um, as soon as students start um, getting their input and learning about different aspects of teaching, we start building a rubric. Say, for example, we've done classroom management, the unit of classroom yeah. management, typical. Okay, so let's build a rubric uh, for the aspects of classroom management. So when we come to the first observation that here is done in the second semester of the first methods course, they already have a picture of what a good lesson should be like. And they have processed it themselves by looking at transcripts, looking at lesson plans, looking at uh, evaluations and videos, and also by observing live teaching in their teaching practice with expert teachers. So when it comes the time for them to actually put things in perspective, the level and the richness of the reflection on their own praxis is so much more steep that if we just told them, go teach and let's reflect what worked and what didn't work in your lesson. So this is, this is my quest, trying to find ways to bring light teaching to bear without overtaxing anybody, of course. That's, that's great. That's really good. Um, I think the other thing I'd like to talk a little bit about, which um, definitely intersects with that, is the research, the involvement in research, the research you do, the interest in research, because I think in our profession, what I hear about a lot, what I hear teachers talk about a lot is this idea that they don't have time for research. They don't have exactly. access or time to research. And so it doesn't 
tends not to have an impact on what they do in the classroom. Is this is this something you hear too? And how can oh, that yeah, be changed? Definitely. And there's there's quite a chasm in between the research that is being produced in the ivory towers of university and the teacher research that actually helps teachers improve their teaching and their students' learning. I am a big advocate for um, uh, for the kind of exploratory action research that Richard Smith and Paula Rebolledo and Deborah Bullock created. I think the Champion Teachers projects in Chile, in Peru, and Mexico should be a staple of any teacher education program at the university level. And actually, uh, this year, I took up um, another course in the college where I teach, which is it has a very cryptic name of a reflective practice workshop. And what I did is <clears throat> I got my students uh, the British Council book on exploratory action research, and we follow it chapter by chapter. We looked at the champion teacher stories. And what I found myself is was I had a group of very willing trainees who are about to graduate after three years, four years in college, but they were very tentative in their teaching. And they were also very tentative in how they interacted with me in the lesson. So we worked together in coming up with a question, a wondering, and we zeroed in on why don't their students participate more in English, in their English classes? For some of them, the emphasis was on oral language development. For others, why didn't their students express themselves in writing? And I posed the same question about my own teaching. What is it that I'm doing that uh, does not allow you to fully participate in class? So we developed the whole exploratory cycle together they with their own students, me with them in the teacher education classroom. And now in two weeks, they're going to present the findings of the research because they did the exploratory and the action uh, research cycle. We have some questions and we have some answers. And now we're going to share them with our community. And I'm going to be sharing uh, my uh, own research with my teacher education colleagues. We're lucky that we are given, we are paid for in our college uh, for a certain number of hours to do research. So every year I try to do a piece of research. I did one a couple of years ago during the pandemic about how best to structure uh, online teacher education programs. <clears throat> and we publish them in different um, media, sometimes in journals, Many times it's, uh, the product is a webinar that we record on YouTube. And the idea is to disseminate this grounded research that is part of the reality in the hope that it may resonate with somebody else or in the hope that you will find somebody who disagrees with it and helps you uh, try it out again. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of exploratory action research. And unfortunately, the programs that we we ran in the Americas related to that have now come to an end, but I'm hoping that sometime in the future we can do something related to that because I think there were so many teachers who I saw got so much from, from doing it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then incidentally, um, I've just published a book with Rowledge uh, in a series um, edited by Jill Hatfield and, and Burns. 
it was uh, it took me five years to write that book. Wow. But I had these two wonderful editors who made the book come to life. And it's a wonderful series. It has a lot of topics. <clears throat> Mine is on teacher education, initial language teacher education. But the nice thing about the, the, the book, the series, is how it is set up. Every book has four chapters. The mm -hmm. first chapter is an update of the research in the area that you're writing about. The second chapter is a collection of training or classroom activities based Wonderful. on the research with a connection to the research. Then it's taking those activities and putting them in a framework that, for example, in my case is if you're teaching in a certificate program, short-term certificate program, you could do this. If you're teaching in a BA, that lasts for four years, you could do this. If you're doing it at a master's level, you could do this. And so the first chapter is from research to application, then from application to implications. And the last chapter is from implications back to research. And you give the reader some basic training on the methods for exploring their own praxis and how to make that knowledge socialized. That sounds wonderful. It sounds like a, a real virtuous circle or cycle. Oh, it's yeah. wonderful. And there are all sorts of topics. Gary Barquizen has one about teacher identity, which is just mind blowing. Um, there's one on extensive reading. There's one on motivation. There's another one on professional development. Kathleen Graves, Donald Freeman and Tessa Woodward wrote that one. And we've just created this wonderful community of people who wrote in the series with the same format. And it's very, very enriching as well. That's great. I, I love this connection between research and practice. I think that's the yeah. best, the best way of, of approaching this, isn't it? Absolutely. It's and indigenizing the research as part of a teacher's job that is a challenge so far. Yeah, and demystifying it for teachers as well, which I think is, is what, what exploratory action research does as well, you know, sort of yeah. takes away this sort of wall or barrier that research norm as a word or a term or a, a thing to do normally has mm -hmm. exactly so gabrielle I, I know that you work extensively trying to apart from um helping teachers through teacher education you also do work for um with decision makers with policy makers Mm -hmm. to try and affect change across systems which yeah. i think is the the other big uh big thing when it comes to english language teaching for example or english language teacher education etc um to actually affect a change through curriculum or through influencing policymakers i think is is perhaps even even more difficult than than any well it's i think it's definitely more difficult than any other type of of change if you're changing in a classroom or even in a school. I'd love to hear more well, about how you got involved in that and you know good. what you think you're able to do. What can I tell you? I mean, with all your experience <laughs> in the field. Um, I would I got into it quite incidentally uh, way back, like 20 years ago. Um, a colleague of mine who works for an international consulting firm that deals with uh, this national education projects contacted me to run a, a training of trainers for Ministry of Education personnel. 
<clears throat> particularly on applying a, a, a set of methodological proposals in an underdeveloped country. And um, that was uh, very, very hard work, very, very badly paid, but I just loved the fact that I would be able to go share ideas, learn about different uh, realities, and actually see if you can affect changes. Then I was called in my country a number of times to help with curriculum development, national systemic reforms. And ever since I've been working in different countries, I've been very blessed to be able to work in the Americas, in Europe. Now I'm working in what you can call the Middle East. This past year, I've been helping the Ministry of Education in the Republic of Turkey to develop an early warning system for school dropouts, particularly targeting um, secondary high school grades uh, from the ninth to the 12th grade. And it's, it's quite a challenge, but it gives you also another perspective on the world. And you see that the world, even though it's very diverse, the needs in education are pretty much the same around the world. Right. Uh, this particular project aims to bring down the level of um, high school dropouts in Turkey from something like 38% to the 10% that is the norm in the European Union, and even less if possible. And it's just, I mean, I, I'm lucky because I didn't do my master's and my PhD in. Uh, English language teaching, but I did it in education. So that gave me this um, wider perspective. But the nice thing is you learn about things in one country, you see lessons that have been learned, and you can help others say, look, this is what we did in Paraguay, this is what we did in Chile, and they can look at those innovations and contextualize them to the realities. Because one thing that we generally perceive is uh, I work for development projects which are not loan-based. That is very important. These are generally donations from international agencies to a particular country to improve something in the educational system. So the grandchildren of the people who are taking the courses or doing the innovation won't have to pay for anything. <clears throat> but the wonderful thing is to see how you can, I mean, the locals adapt whatever innovation you present them with to the local reality. We always say in, in this company I work for, we don't come to work for you, we come here to work with you. So what we do is that facilitating change, it's very difficult, when, particularly when you're working with politicians or politically appointed folks who know nothing about education most of the times. Um, it was very, very funny. Once we were doing a, a project on competency-based education, and the Minister of Education met with us and said, you know, I don't like this idea of competency very more. I want much more. I, I really want more cooperation. So he, he didn't have a clue about what competency-based education was. He thought it was competition, did he? Competition, absolutely. <laughs> so you get to educate people and what i enjoy the most is you get to work with the people in the ground in the schools and sometimes that is in the middle of the jungle sometimes it's in the middle of the desert turf classrooms no blackboard no technology no nothing 
but you see the passion of your colleagues who try to make a difference in students' lives. And that is just priceless. Wow, wonderful. I'd love to hear you, if you can and would like to, talk a little bit about one particular example where you're proud of the work that you've done or the accomplishment through working with policymakers to affect some kind of change on, on a system? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always think very fondly of uh, a project I did in Chile, uh, working with 36 universities that have what they call pedagogy in English, this is the BA in English language teaching. Um, <clears throat> I work with 36 universities facilitating the reconfiguration of their curricula for that particular career um, so that they could match the national standards imposed by the ministry. Uh, that was a very politically charged project, as you can imagine, because universities are uh, autonomous. But in this case, if they are going to continue educating language teachers, they needed to comply with 10 um, standards that the Ministry of Education proposed for English language teaching. And then after the, the students graduated from the university, they would have to sit for a test to gain qualified teacher status. The test was 60 multiple choice questions, 60, 40 of which were to certify a C2 level, but only through multiple choice, no listening, no reading, no writing. And then the other 20 would have to give testimony of their pedagogical ability to teach a language. So, you know, this is what happens when ministries have this wonderful idea and then <clears throat> they send it off down to be implemented. The wonderful work we did was that every university actually got empowered. You know, university systems in Chile are highly accredited. They need to renew their accreditation every few years and they can lose the accreditation. And that means the end of a program with the consequences it has. I mean, teachers losing their jobs, students not being able to study. And that was very well orchestrated and it had support from two international bodies, the Department of State of the United States and the British Council. And what the British Council did, which I think was amazing, they created a network of directors of these careers. And they offer regular seminars where they could come together and share what they were doing. So the, at the end of the process, we had had all these communities mobilized for self-studies. They knew where they were and where they wanted to be. They had the standards as a benchmark, let's say, but they, they all said, we don't want to lose what makes us unique. So there was a lot of adaptation of uh, to, to comply with the law without losing their identity. And the lessons learned were amazing. We ended up doing um, a seminar with the lessons learned during the process, it was a two-year process, for the national authorities. That is to say, the universities taught the national authorities in the presidential palace with all the pomp and circumstance. And it was wonderful that they gave back their appraisal of the policy. 
And that led to interesting changes. For example, that test got reconfigured and the original standards got revised and republished. So now it was the standards that were making their way to becoming suitable with what the universities had done. So that was, to me, of the recent projects, the one that had the most impact. That's wonderful. It's great when an example, you know, when you see something like that working as it should be working, isn't it? And, you know, I think the challenge is to to take that example and try and sort of make it disseminated so that other ministries of education in other countries see what is possible when you know you have the right people doing the right things and the, and the will to make that change as it should be done well the problem we have there we have a problem with international lending bodies like the world bank or the inter-american development or the asian bank that when they give loans for education they already have their cookie cutter model that they want implemented and making those international lending bodies understand the need for contextualization, that it's about policy borrowing and not policy imposition. That is what really works. This standards movement in Chile, for example, was born out of an example of standards that had been developed in Uruguay in 2010. 2010, uh, the government decided there would be a unified teacher education system in the country. <clears throat> Everybody would have to teach a national curriculum. And we had uh, foreign language, modern foreign language teaching uh, programs in French, Italian, Portuguese, and English. Each of those programs had traditionally been autonomous and independent, and there was no cross-dissemination. So as a as a strategy to bring those four more foreign languages together, we organized um, a series of um, seminars where we learned about developing a common exit profile for all the languages. We looked at the knowledge base. Um, we had facilitators coming from abroad whom we invited, but there was a lot of group work. So we actually came up with a book standards for the education of modern foreign language teachers in Uruguay that had everything from the point of view of language proficiency, teaching, assessment, and uh, administrative duties, and also adaptive expertise as a, as a concept, because we are in foreign languages, we teach in the primary level, at the secondary level, or the tertiary level. So the, the book was good. It was not the standards that really matter. It was the exercise of working to, together towards a common definition that would gel the modern foreign languages department, which had just been born. And of course, the standards were tentative and they could be revised um, as needed. But those standards provided the matrix to create a curriculum that was more grounded. And then Chile learned about that. And what they did is they said, we want the standards, right? And what we said was, this is not going to work because you want standards to standardize. We created the standards to come together. Then Ecuador heard of that. And not only did they borrow the standards, they took them lock, stock, and barrel verbatim, and they added one more domain, which was religious education, 
which is done through English language teaching as well. <clears throat> and the way the same idea worked in each of these countries was completely different. In Uruguay, it set a precedent about a department that was coming together. In Chile, we had the positive washback effect of the reform affecting the standards. But in Ecuador, it caused a huge deal of problems. Of course, there was lack of ownership. And the universities that had come together to create this for the government ended up disbanding and nothing came to fruition in the end. So we have to be very careful when we do policy borrowing to say, this is what worked in our context. Now look at your context, it's like exploratory action research. First, do your exploration. Is this the right way to go? Yeah, exactly. There's there's so much about the a difference in differences in culture, really, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Too, and and educational systems and contexts and needs that need to be taken into account. You can't just take something from another country or system and impose it, as you say. Absolutely, absolutely. Unfortunately, that's the way things are done in many places around the world. I think it's because a lot of time, well, probably not for the wrong reasons, because of time pressures, of demands, et cetera, external demands. I think a lot of countries, ministries are looking for sort of quick solutions yeah. to quick complex fix. problems, and they don't exist in general, no. do they? No. And you look at things like, for example, you're going to do a, a major national reform. The first thing you have to do is to prepare the teachers for that. And we see that the opposite is true. Say in this international uh, cooperation projects, there's always funding to go to the places where the model programs are being implemented successfully so as to observe those things. Well, you can never find a teacher in the or a, a school principal. You only get the politicians go and spend a week in in a nice country looking at all these things, and that information never trickles down to the people who are really going to do it. And one thing that I've been talking about lately is um, how the first thing that went in budgets post-pandemic was the money for teachers' professional development. We're going back to the situation where teachers are mandated a certain thing and left on their own. And we know from literature and from years of research that if you want teachers to develop, they need to be able to learn and be supported, work with their peers, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what it is going to take, maybe another pandemic so that institutions realize they have to invest on teachers and not just on infrastructure. Yeah, and it, it's true that, you know, if you have motivated teachers, then it, it uh, is going to have a massive effect on the learners, isn't it really? That's oh, demotivated teachers will, will have the opposite effect that what you want to achieve and Absolutely. It's, Taking and, care and of teachers is so important. Students get the vibe. I mean, it's amazing. I have a, a master's student now who's doing a very interesting piece of research on bullying in schools. You know, bullying is a big thing, cyberbullying or physical or verbal bullying. And one of the findings that he has is that students have verbalized how teachers bully one another. That we try to find in the literature something to support that and that is a real finding 
when students say, no, well, I have never experienced bullying, but Miss such and such is being bullied by Miss such and such. And she comes to us and tells us this teacher, this, this teacher, that. And we were like, oh my God. And wow. teachers reporting being bullied by administrators, being bullied by peers, being bullied by parents. Wow. Yes, we need to invest on teachers. Teachers are the answer, not the problem. Yes, definitely. Listen, Gabriel, I'm I'm conscious that we're kind of coming, moving towards the end of the time that we have uh, available mm -hmm. for the show. And I wouldn't like to have talked to you without talking about your um, involvement and passion for teacher education through teacher associations, in particular, yes. the teacher association IATEFL that you mentioned before that we both think is a wonderful organization. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about, about your involvement with that because you were through the presidency of that. But I think back some years ago, I think, how did you get involved and and what took it took uh, you uh, to that's a become nice president? Story, actually. That's a nice story, actually. I, I trained to be a teacher during the dictatorship and one of the things that dictators did was ban all kinds of books. And if they were foreign books in English that couldn't be read or understood by them, they were literally banned. And one of our teacher educators was a member of IATEFL and she received the IATEFL newsletter, which was the original, what is now IATEFL Voices, right? And that was our source of literature to learn how to teach the experiences of all these teachers around the world. So once I became a full-fledged teacher and I have some disposable money, I became a member. Uh, my membership with IATEFO from 1991 was on and off because many times uh, membership fees were too steep for me to pay. But then I would say starting 21st century, working in teacher education, working in other jobs, I could steadily afford that. And I learned that volunteering is a way of serving the profession. So I volunteered for the teacher trainers and education SIG. I became their newsletter editor and I got to learn up close and personal how the organization uh, was managed. The management style of a British charity to me is ideal in that you have trustees, but you also have administrators ahead office. And these strategic partnerships with different organizations give the profession a true seal of quality. So I did a lot of things for IATEFL, then I was invited to give a plenary that was the highest honor in my profession. And after that, people started approaching me and said, would you run, would you run, would you run? I didn't really want to run because I was aware that I'm very far away from the UK and Europe, but in the end I did. And I couldn't be happier. I mean, the best thing that could happen to us was the pandemic, I have to say, it, because that kind of cleaned the management of any personal agendas. We became a truly collaborative team trying to save the association and keep it afloat. And honestly, we all learned together as trustees. We really got to live by the motto that once you become a trustee, the important thing is the association, that is your remit. So uh, we learned a lot about emergency management. We learned a lot about um, money management. When you lose members and you have to run events. And I can say that now we are in a pretty stable position. We are not out of the woods yet, but I mean... We are looking forward to Harrogate 2023. Um, our Belfast conference was quite a success. And 
let's see what the future has in store. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, you see this at the global level. I mean, um, I belong to different associations and they are all struggling because of the same reasons. We all took a hit in terms of membership because basically teachers couldn't afford membership. Many times they were let go of their jobs. So I think now it's a process of reconstruction and reinventing ourselves as a service to the profession. We are a charity registered in the UK. And what we do is we offer an association to teachers around the world. So we have a charitable commitment, which means we have to invest the money that we have or that comes to us immediately to the benefit of the English language teaching profession. That means doing a lot of free events like what we do, the uh, monthly webinars, the blogs, the publications. We are now and I think every association is. We have been in close contact with TESOL International as well. We are looking, and of course, we are uh, very close to other organizations in Europe as well. We're all trying to reinvent ourselves and find new sources of income to be able to continue our charitable remit. But the nice thing is, it was wonderful to see people coming back to the association once their economic situation became more stable. So that means there's a commitment. Yes, no, and I think I think that will only grow as well because you know the value of belonging to an international teacher association such as IETFL, and as you said before, I think I I agree with the IETFL is the the best one that I know is um is clear. I think and people really get a lot from from being a member or participating. It's an all inclusive association. I mean, contrary to what happens with other associations where you see little compartments where you see the researchers going one way and the teachers go in another one, you have a space for whatever your interest is, thanks to the special interest groups that we have. And because the special interest groups work as a collective, there is a lot of cross-dissemination of expertise. We do a lot of joint events between SIGs, right? And you see that if you are interested in research, there is a SIG you can do, but then you can go to other SIGs that are connected to research and expand your expertise there. And I think that is precious, literally. Definitely. Well, Gabriel, I think I'm going to have to wrap things up because of time, but uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. It's uh, so much I've 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 got and learned from from this conversation. It, it feels like I could speak for hours hours longer, but I won't take up any more of your time. It was my pleasure, and thank you very much for thinking of me for this. My real pleasure. Thank you. So that brings us to the end of today's morning break. Many thanks to today's special guest, Dr. Gabriel Diaz Maggioli, and all of you who joined us live. And to, of course, to those of you listening back to the recording. Remember, there are Teachers Talk radio shows all week, and you can join me again next week at the same time. Bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.